0: And then when they're done with us, the brood hatches out, total global domination, total enslavement of you and your family. And you'll have just, I mean, Bush is energizing the phony left wing. They're hatching out everywhere. They're going to totally take over. And don't think these leftists are going to care when you're getting dragged off to a camp, having your guns taken. They're going to be cheating, going,
1: finally the UN came to America and stopped this fashion takeover. It feels so good. that so good. It's shocking, magic takeover feels so good. Feels so good. shut up shut up
2: love Welcome, my friends. UN. welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan, on this 24th day of May, 2009. I'd like to take this opportunity to encourage my listeners, as always, to look into the websites CorbettReport.com and al com to find articles, episodes, interviews, and videos created and conducted by the Corbett Report in the past. Listeners may have noticed in the past 10 days five new YouTube videos popping up on our YouTube account and over at VeracityVideos.com as well. And rest assured, there are many more videos on the way. So listeners are advised to keep their eye on YouTube.com slash CorbettReport and VeracityVideos.com slash CorbettReport for more videos. We also regularly receive emails through our contact form on CorbettReport.com asking for permission to take our videos from the YouTube account and post them up on other people's YouTube user accounts. Of course, since everything we do here at The Corbett Report is geared towards getting this information out to other people, we not only allow people to take our videos and post them up on their own accounts, we encourage it wholeheartedly. So if there is a video that you find interesting or worthwhile in preserving against the YouTube censors and all the various forms of internet regulation and control that are coming down the pipeline, please take the time to download it and put it up on your own account. Now, without further ado, Let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from the Wall Street Journal, May 22, 2009. The climate industrial complex. Some businesses see nothing but profits in the green movement. Some business leaders are cozying up with politicians and scientists to demand swift, drastic action on global warming. This is a new twist on a very old practice, companies using public policy to line their own pockets. The tight relationship between the groups echoes the relationship among weapons makers, researchers, and the U.S. military during the Cold War. President Dwight Eisenhower famously warned about the might of the military-industrial complex... ...cautioning that the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. He worried that there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action... ...could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. This is certainly true of climate change. We are told that very expensive carbon regulations are the only way to respond to global warming despite ample evidence that this approach does not pass a basic cost-benefit analysis. We must ask whether a climate-industrial complex is emerging, pressing taxpayers to fork over money to please those who stand to gain. Today's second Real News story comes from PropagandaMatrix.com, May 22, 2009. Exactly as we predicted... Deadly New York Terror Cell Are Semi-Retarded Potheads. As in every other major case, terror group hyped by media turn out to be low IQ bums radicalized by federal provocateurs. Exactly as we predicted in our headline story yesterday, two of the ringleaders in the deadly New York terror plot salaciously hyped by the media and government officials have turned out to be semi-retarded potheads. The men will likely turn out to be semi-retarded dropouts, we stated in our article yesterday, basing our forecast on the fact that in every other major terror sting in the West, given so much prominence by officials and the corporate media, the poor suckers rounded up by the feds always turn out to be low-IQ, petty criminals down on their luck, provocateured and armed by federal agents. We already knew that the men were provided with an inert rocket launcher and fake C4 explosives by an FBI informant, And now, as more details emerge, our original summation of the case is proving accurate. According to an Associated Press report, the four men charged with planning to blow up synagogues and military planes were amateurs every step of the way. They had trouble finding guns and bought cameras at Walmart to photograph their targets. One was a convicted purse snatcher. Another smoked marijuana on the day the plot was to be carried out. The report continues... Relatives said the defendants were down on their luck men who worked at places like Walmart, a landscaping company, and a warehouse when they weren't behind bars. Payan's lawyer said he was intellectually challenged and on medication for schizophrenia. Marilyn Reader said he was a very low borderline IQ. Of course, it was only after an FBI informant radicalized these bums and provided them with weapons that they became any kind of threat, providing the feds the opportunity to swoop in declare a victory in the war on terror, and use the case as a poster child for Americans to accept police state measures and believe the hype surrounding domestic terrorists in the wake of controversy surrounding the MIAC report. As the AP article concedes, some have criticized informants' roles in such case, saying they egged on and ensnared suspects who weren't dangerous. Today's third real news story comes from msnbc.com, 13th of May 2009. DNA lawsuit pits patients against patents. Cancer gene monopoly limits medical care and research, ACLU claims. When Janae Girard received a diagnosis of breast cancer in 2006, she knew she would be facing medical challenges and high expenses. But she did not expect to run into patent problems. Miss Gerard took a genetic test to see if her genes also put her at increased risk for ovarian cancer, which might require the removal of her ovaries. The test came back inconclusive, so she wanted a second opinion from another test. But there can be no second opinion. A decision by the government more than 10 years ago allowed a single company, Myriad Genetics, to own the patent on two genes that are closely associated with increased risk for breast cancer and ovarian cancer and on the testing that measures that risk on tuesday miss gerard 39 who lives in the austin texas area filed a lawsuit against myriad and the patent office challenging the decision to grant a patent on a gene to myriad and companies like it she was joined by five other cancer patients by professional organizations of pathologists with more than 100,000 members, and by several individual pathologists and genetic researchers. The lawsuit, believed to be the first of its kind, was organized by the American Civil Liberties Union and filed in federal court in New York. It blends patent law, medical science, breast cancer activism, and an unusual civil liberties argument in ways that could make it a landmark case. Christopher A. Hansen, Senior National Staff Counsel for the Civil Liberties Union, said the problem was with the patent office, not the company. He recalled that when he first heard that the office had granted a patent for the gene, I said that can't be true. As the ACLU explored the restrictions on competition that companies like Marriott had put in place, blocking alternatives to the patented tests, and even the practice of interpreting or comparing gene sequences that involved those genes... The restrictions started to look like not just a question of patent law, Mr. Hansen said, but of the First Amendment's guarantee of free speech as well. What they have really patented, he said, is knowledge. Today's final Real News story comes to us from Breitbart.com, May 13, 2009. Scientists arrested for smuggling vials used in Ebola research into U.S. A Canadian scientist has been arrested for smuggling 22 vials stolen from Canada's National Microbiology Lab used in Ebola and HIV research into the United States, Canadian and U.S. officials said Wednesday. Conan-Michel Yao, 42, was taken into custody while crossing the border from Manitoba province into the western U.S. state of North Dakota on May 5th said a spokesman for the Public Health Agency of Canada, which operates the lab. According to U.S. prosecutor Lynn Jordheim, Yao was detained for carrying unidentified biological materials in vials wrapped in aluminum foil, inside a glove, and packaged in a plastic bag, along with electrical wires in the trunk of his car. Yao said in an affidavit he stole the vials described as research vectors from the Winnipeg Lab on his last day of work there on January 21st. He told U.S. Border Guards he was taking them to his new job with the National Institutes of Health at the Biodefense Research Laboratory in Bethesda, Maryland. U.S. authorities feared their contents could pose a terrorist threat, but tests later showed they are not hazardous, said Jordheim. This turned out not to be a terrorism-related case, he said by telephone from North Dakota. It appears to be exactly as he, Yao, said. However, he still faces possible charges for smuggling the vials into the United States. Yao, meanwhile, remains in U.S. custody after waiving his right to bail in preliminary hearings as he awaits a possible grand jury indictment for smuggling, he said. A public health agency of Canada spokesman told AFP Yao was "...working on vaccines for the Ebola virus and HIV, among other things." But he only had access to harmless and non-infectious materials, similar to what you'd find in a hospital or university lab. He did not have access to dangerous materials.
1: Yes, hostages! We will execute them, that is what I said. You may do what you want with me, but these poor young people are entirely innocent. Shut up! I said, look, yes, yes. You say that they are only missionaries, but we know that they're agents of the colonial past. What, I cannot hear you. I cannot
3: hear
1: you, what? Get down, all of you, you cockroach. Drop your weapon. Your men are disarmed and the place is surrounded. You will drop your weapon. It was Canada that proposed the United Nations Peacekeeping Force in 1956. General Jacques Dextras of the Royal Fusiliers of Montreal would later become head of our armed forces. Who are you? Dextras, United Nations Peacekeeping Force.
2: Welcome to episode 87 of the Corbett Report. The UN doesn't love you. Now, perhaps my Canadian listeners will recognize that foregoing clip as an example of the Heritage Minute commercial series that have been running on Canadian TV for the past decade or two. Now, there are many examples of these, but they are generally one-minute clips highlighting a remarkable moment from Canada's past or a remarkable achievement by Canadians, on the world stage. And that preceding clip is, of course, in praise of the United Nations peacekeeping force, which all good Canadians will know was spearheaded by Canadian Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson, and is part of Canada's proud past. Because, of course, nothing could be more wonderful than the United Nations and the blue helmet-wearing peacekeepers, who are always and solely a force of good in this world. Well, speaking as a Canadian, I can assure my non-Canadian listeners that Canadians, at least, have been thoroughly indoctrinated that the United Nations is a wonderful force of good in the world. And, of course, we have things like the Model UN, which, of course, is an international program that indoctrinates high schoolers about how the United Nations is a wonderful organization working to solve all of the world's problems via international cooperation and designed to give everyone the warm fuzzies about this wonderful, caring organization. And I'm sure that the United States has not received the same level of United Nations indoctrination, but I know there is some United Nations indoctrination in all of the member state countries, and of course I'm sure other Commonwealth countries will have received similar indoctrination about the UN in their formative years. And it seems this is one of those cases where there's no amount of actual case examples pointing to the opposite, that is, the idea that the United Nations is not a force of good, that can ever convince one of the United Nations Kool-Aid drinkers that perhaps something is rotten in the state of Denmark, or in New York, where the United Nations headquarters is at any rate. So... Given that reluctance and that conditioning to disregard any evidence against the United Nations, today we will not be focusing on stories like this one from scotsman.com from the 22nd of December 2002 under the headline Peacekeeper Jailed for Porn Films, which begins... An Irish soldier serving as a United Nations peacekeeper in Eritrea has been caught making pornographic videos of local women and is now serving a jail sentence in Ireland. It was revealed last night. And we will not be talking about this Fox News story. From December 23, 2002, UN complicit in forced sterilizations which goes into a coordinated program of United Nations collaboration in sterilizing poor rural women in Peru from 1995 to 1997. Nor will we be talking about this BBC News article from November 2006 under the headline, UN Troops Face Child Abuse Claims, and the subheadline Children Have Been Subjected to Rape and Prostitution by United Nations Peacekeepers in Haiti and Liberia, a BBC investigation has found. We will not be talking about the BBC News article from 28th of July 2007. UN requires better peacekeepers. A UN official has said soldiers from countries whose armies are suspected of torture and abuse should not be considered for peacekeeping operations. Nor will we be talking about the BBC News article from 28th of April 2008. UN defends DR Congo investigation. And the subheadline the head of United Nations Operations in DR Congo, has defended the UN against charges of a cover-up. Nor will we be bringing attention to the BBC News article from the 27th of May 2008, Peacekeepers Abusing Children, with the subheadline, Children as Young as Six are Being Sexually Abused by Peacekeepers and Aid Workers, says a leading UK charity. Because, of course, no amount of individual news headlines, stacked one on top of another, will ever convince someone that the United Nations has something rotten at its core. And likewise, we will not be concentrating on information that we've looked at before, such as the information about Julian Huxley, the former president of the British Eugenics Society, who went on to found the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, We will not point out that in his document, UNESCO, Its Philosophy and Its Purpose, the founding document of UNESCO, he writes, Still another and quite different type of borderline subject is that of eugenics. It has been on the borderline between the scientific and the unscientific, constantly in danger of becoming a pseudoscience based on preconceived political ideas or on assumptions of racial or class superiority and inferiority, it is, however, essential that eugenics should be brought entirely within the borders of science, for, as already indicated, in the not-very-remote future, the problem of improving the average quality of human beings is likely to become urgent, and this can only be accomplished by applying the findings of a truly scientific eugenics. End quote. Nor will we once again go over the March eleventh, two 2004 article UNICEF- Nigerian polio vaccine contaminated with sterilizing agents, scientist finds. Nor will we be looking into the UN's current efforts to help in the swine flu pandemic by helping to develop a vaccine for use in the fall. Nor will we be looking at the Washington Post, July twenty third, 2007. In Botswana, Step to Cut AIDS Proves a Formula for Disaster, which talks about how a UN infant formula program ...resulted in deaths in the third world. Nor will we be looking at the excellent and informative article from Yurian Meissen... ...at Infowars.com from May 20th, 2009... ...UNESCO and the New World Order in their own words. But, of course, if you're interested in any of the foregoing... ...a link to each and every one of those articles and documents... ...will be provided in the documentation section for today's episode... ...which is available by going to CorbettReport.com clicking on the episodes tab, finding today's episode, and hitting documentation, which will take you to a time index sorted list of all of the articles, documents, videos, and other resources talked about in today's episode. For a hint of what we will be looking at today, we'll have to look at the very core structure of the UN and some of its core fundamental programs, ones that are generally seen to be the most philanthropic and wonderful ideas and ideals in the world today. For a hint of what we will be looking at in today's episode, let's turn to this article from September 19th, 1997 from CNN.com. Ted Turner donates $1 billion to UN causes. Quote, CNN founder and Time Warner Vice Chairman Ted Turner announced Thursday night that he will donate $1 billion over the next decade to United Nations programs. Turner made the announcement at a dinner held in New York by the United Nations Association USA to honor Turner for his contribution to the international community. He was presented the Global Leadership Award by the group. Speaking of his gift, Turner said, this is not going to go for administration. This is only going to go for programs... Programs like refugees, cleaning up landmines, peacekeeping, UNICEF for the children, for diseases, and we're going to have a committee that will work with the committee of the UN. The money can only go to UN causes. End quote. What a wonderful philanthropic man, filled with a desire to do good for humanity and to raise everyone's standard of living. Of course, this is the same Ted Turner who has a tendency to wax philosophic, about how there are too many people on the planet and that humanity must be reduced in numbers. For example, this article from PrisonPlanet.com, April 28, 2008, Ted Turner repeats call for population curb. Quote, Billionaire globalist Ted Turner, who earlier this month predicted that global warming would eventually lead to cannibalism, has repeated his call to curb population growth claiming that disappearing farmland will cause food riots, despite the fact that Turner himself is behind the push to grow corn-based ethanol, an industry the UN has blamed for food shortages and increased poverty. There are a lot of different problems being caused by an ever-increasing number of people in a finite-sized world, Turner told CNBC's Bob Pisani. The resources of the planet just can't keep up with the demand, and I'm afraid this is going to be more commonplace. I'm afraid we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. It's very complicated, I do want to say. End quote. Now, one might have pause for thought about why a billionaire like Ted Turner would donate a billion dollars of his own money to the United Nations to carry out programs for helping humanity when he has an avowed aversion to the increase of the human population and wants to see a reduction in human numbers. But why take it from Ted Turner, who is only... Tangentially related to the UN, why not take it to one of the UN environmental program's main gurus, Morris or Maurice Strong, who had these startling words to say in a 1972 interview with BBC
1: The natural world in which man lives and on which we, he depends is indeed deteriorating, is being uh, destroyed in many instances at a uh, a rate that is accelerating and that can only continue to accelerate unless we begin to control the activities that are are, are having this destructive impact. Now, whether we are pessimistic or optimistic depends really on what we think about the nature of man. Whether we really believe that man, in light of this evidence, is going to be wise enough and enlightened enough to uh, subject himself to this kind of discipline and control. The film Zero Population Growth predicts a society in the next century where uh, there is overpopulation, where there is extreme pollution, Mm -hmm. and where people can no longer be allowed to have babies. Now, Mm -hmm. is this the shape of things to come? Well, I haven't seen the film. But I can say that if we continue on our present uh, uh, trends, on our present course, it's very likely that in many parts of the world this will be the case. In fact, we have begun to see it in many areas. Now, licenses to have babies, something that uh, uh, I got in trouble for some uh, years ago for uh, suggesting even in Canada that this might be necessary at some point or some, at least some you know, restriction on the... Uh, on the uh, right to have a child. I'm not proposing this. I was simply predicting this as, a, as one of the possible courses that society would have, to be, uh, uh, would have to seriously consider, should we get ourselves into this kind of situation? But I think is the, 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 the promising thing in this is that it isn't necessary to get ourselves into this situation. How do we avoid it? We can avoid it, I think, first of all, by doing what we're now doing, and that is discussing it understanding that the problem does exist, that the possibility does exist, and in the actions which I I believe still are open to us, if we take those actions in time, I'm persuaded that the future of man is going to be decided very much by the decisions taken in this generation.
2: Yes, Morris Strong, spelled M-A-U-R-I-C-E, Morris Strong, musing on the possibility of instituting licenses to have babies, or at least restricting people's rights to have children, even as he claims to almost disavow that notion by saying that he got in trouble for stating it in Canada. So who is Morris Strong, and why should we take him seriously? Well, unfortunately, he's someone who has traditionally wielded a great degree of power in the past, and probably the best introduction to Morris Strong comes from an article entitled Kyoto Protocol Compiled by Unelected Global Bureaucrats by Ezra Levant from December 2, 2002. Quote, The Kyoto Protocol was the work of thousands of bureaucrats, diplomats, and politicians, but no one person is more responsible for it than a Canadian named Morris Strong. Strong organized the UN First World Environmental Summit in Stockholm in 1972 and has never stopped pressing for a world where UN resolutions would be enforced as a law all over the earth. Strong went on to chair the 1992 UN Conference on Environment and Development in Rio and to become senior advisor to Kofi Annan, the UN's Secretary General. Not bad for a kid from Oak Lake, Manitoba, who dropped out of school at age 14. But Strong is different than other social butterflies who flit from one UN conference to the next. He is a powerful businessman who has served as president of such massive energy companies as Petro Canada and Ontario Hydro, and on the board of industrial giant Toyota. He is a huge political donor, not just here in Canada, but to both the Republican and Democratic parties in the US as well. At age twenty-nine, he became president of Power Corporation, fusing his destiny to Canada's wealthiest and most influential families, including Paul Martin Sr. and Jr., now heir apparent to the Prime Minister. Strong hired Paul Jr. to work for him during a vacation from university. We controlled many companies, controlled political budgets, Strong said of his time at Power Corporation. Politicians got to know you, and you them. Strong hired Martin into Power Corporation's executive suite. He helped guide Martin towards unimaginable personal wealth and even predicted Martin's path to becoming prime minister. But Strong's influence reaches farther than Canada. Indeed, compared to Strong's American and European friends, Martin is a small star in the constellation. Strong sits on boards with the Rockefellers and Mikhail Gorbachev and chairs private meetings of CEOs, including Bill Gates. He hobnobs with the world's royalty, too and with dictators and despots. He once did a business deal with arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi and wound up with a 200,000-acre ranch in Colorado, which his wife, Hannah, runs as a New Age spiritual colony. He told McLean's magazine in 1976 that he was a socialist in ideology, a capitalist in methodology. He warns that if we don't heed his environmentalist warnings, the earth will collapse into chaos. Do we really want this? Do we want Marx to be proven right after all, Strong asks. He shares the view of the most radical environmentalist street protester, but instead of shouting himself hoarse at a police barricade outside a global conference, he's the secretary-general inside, wielding the gavel. Strong has always courted power, but not through any shabby election campaign. He was a liberal candidate in the 1979 federal election, but pulled out a month before the vote. How could a mere MP wield the kind of international control he has tasted in Stockholm? Journalist Elaine Dewar, who interviewed Strong, described why he loved the UN. He could raise his own money from whomever he liked, appoint anyone he wanted, control the agenda, wrote Dewar. He told me he had more unfettered power than a cabinet minister in Ottawa. He was right. He didn't have to run for re-election, yet he could profoundly affect lives. Strong prefers power extracted from democracies and kept from unenlightened voters. Most power-crazed men would stop at calling for a one-world Earth Charter to replace the U.S. Constitution, or the U.N. Charter. But in an interview with his own Earth Charter Commission, Strong said, "...the real goal of the Earth Charter is it will in fact become like the Ten Commandments. It will become a symbol of the aspirations and commitments of people everywhere." Sounds like Morris was hanging out at his spirit ranch without his sun hat on. There has been no one like Morris Strong before, except perhaps in fiction. Ernst Blofeld comes to mind, 007's round-faced nemesis in You Only Live Twice. But Blofeld sought to attack the world order, to challenge it from some remote hideaway, not to co-opt it and transform it from the inside, as Strong does. Blofeld would threaten a meeting of the UN. Strong would chair the meeting and script its agenda. Strangely, Strong once indulged his inner Blofeld, musing to a stunned reporter about a violent plot to take over the world through one of his many super-organizations. In 1990, Strong told a reporter a fantasy scenario for the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, Switzerland, where 1,000 diplomats, CEOs, and politicians gather to address global issues. Strong, naturally, is on the board of the World Economic Forum. What if a small group of these world leaders were to conclude the principal risk to the Earth comes from the actions of the rich countries? In order to save the planet, the group decides, isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrialized civilizations collapse? Isn't it our responsibility to bring this about? That's strong talking, but those are Blofeld's words coming out. But this is no fictitious Bond movie villain speaking. It is the man who chaired the Rio Earth Summit, and who is Kofi Annan's senior advisor. This group of world leaders forms a secret society to bring about an economic collapse, continued Strong, warming to his fantasy. It's February. They're all at Davos. These aren't terrorists. They're world leaders. They have positioned themselves in the world's commodities and stock markets. They've engineered using their access to stock markets and computers and gold supplies, a panic. Then, they prevent the world's stock markets from closing. They jam the gears. They hire mercenaries who hold the leaders at Davos as hostage. The markets can't close. Strong catches himself. I probably shouldn't be saying things like this. End quote. No, you cannot make this stuff up, and truth is a billion times stranger than the strangest fiction. Yet more perspective on Morris Strong comes from the Canada Free Press, which wrote an article in 2005 as Strong's name was being floated in connection with the UN oil for food scandal. This article, which contains a string of Strong is weird paragraph openings, and I'll read from the middle of this article, quote, Strong is weird in the kind of international assignments he lands. What really qualifies him to conduct UN reform? Precisely what credentials does Strong really have to be dispatched by UN Secretary General Kofi Annan to global hotspots like North Korea? And what is he doing when he's in China? It is weird that Strong advocates for world depopulation schemes, tells the unwashed masses that both refrigeration and air conditioning are going to wipe out Mother Earth. It's weird that as a practicing New Ager, Strong dabbles in the occult. Weird is that he didn't know one of the largest American aquifers was sitting right under the 100,000-acre Baca Ranch in Colorado he ran as a New Age Mecca with his wife Hannah, and that he came to acquire the property through Saudi arms dealer Adnan Khoshoggi. Weirdest of all is the spin that comes with the Morris Strong Package. The kind of spin about Strong that comes from Nicholas Sontag, a Canadian who heads up the Beijing office of CH2M Hill, one of the world's leading environment companies. Sontag has said of Strong's business in China, they, China, are taking a big risk. They're determined to be the economic engine of the world. This is why Morris is here, to help them think things through. Why would an entire country rely on one man to help them think things through? It's a kind of spin that only the pros at Fox News' O'Reilly Factor could stop. It shouldn't matter that Strong is a Canadian spinmeister when it was the Rockefeller family that gained him entree to the United Nations. End quote. For more excellent analysis of Morris Strong and how he helped to bring about the current so-called scientific consensus on man-made climate change... I direct my listeners to an excellent article by Dr. Tim Ball, who has been a guest on this program before, uh, again at CanadaFreePress.com, under the headline, How UN Structures Were Designed to Prove Human CO2 Was Causing Global Warming, detailing how Morris Strong set up not only the political vehicle of the man-made climate change believers, the United Nations Environment Programme, UNEP, But he also created the so-called scientific vehicle, which is really a political vehicle in itself, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and how he brought them together at the Earth Summit in Rio, which he was the Secretary General of in 1992. And again, even more information can be found at AFN.org from a National Review article entitled, Who is Morris Strong? But let's turn to an article from Sovereignty.net, with some quotations from Mr. Strong himself, which I think are important for understanding exactly what these UN programs and organizations have been set up to achieve and why. This is from an article entitled Meet Morris Strong, and it reads in part, quote, Strong has worked diligently and effectively to bring his ideas to fruition. He is now in a position to implement them, His speeches and writings provide a clear picture of what to expect. In 1991, Strong wrote the introduction to a book published by the Trilateral Commission called Beyond Interdependence, The Meshing of the World's Economy and the Earth's Ecology by Jim McNeil. David Rockefeller wrote the foreword. Strong said this, This interlocking is the new reality of the century with profound implications for the shape of our institutions of governance, national and international. By the year 2012, these changes must be fully integrated into our economic and political life. He told the opening session of the Rio conference, Earth Summit 2, in 1992, that industrialized countries have, Developed and benefited from the unsustainable patterns of production and consumption which have produced our present dilemma. It is clear that current lifestyles and consumption patterns of the affluent middle class involving high meat intake, consumption of large amounts of frozen and convenience foods, use of fossil fuels, appliances, home and workplace air conditioning, and suburban housing are not sustainable a shift is necessary toward lifestyles less geared to environmentally damaging consumption patterns. In an essay by Strong entitled Stockholm to Rio, A Journey Down a Generation, he says, Strengthening the role the United Nations can play will require serious examination of the need to extend into the international arena the rule of law and the principle of taxation to finance agreed actions which provide the basis for governance at the national level. But this will not come about easily. Resistance to such changes is deeply entrenched. They will come about not through the embrace of full-blown world government, but as a careful and pragmatic response to compelling imperatives and the inadequacies of alternatives. The concept of national sovereignty has been an immutable, indeed sacred, principle of international relations. It is a principle which will yield only slowly and reluctantly to the new imperatives of global environmental cooperation. What is needed is recognition of the reality that in so many fields, and this is particularly true of environmental issues, it is simply not feasible for sovereignty to be exercised unilaterally by individual nation-states, however powerful, the global community must be assured of environmental security. End quote. Now perhaps listeners will be reminded of a quotation from a book entitled The First Global Revolution that the Club of Rome, a group of very influential politicians and bureaucrats from around the globe, put out in 1991 and that quotation is the common enemy of humanity is man in searching for a new enemy to unite us we came up with the idea that pollution the threat of global warming water shortages famine and the like would fit the bill all these dangers are caused by human intervention and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome the real enemy then is humanity itself Of course, one might think that perhaps Morris Strong had been copying from the Club of Rome, or maybe even the other way around, until one finds out that one of the members of the Club of Rome is, surprise, surprise, Morris Strong. So, indeed, this is a very influential person. But, of course, this person, although he embodies many of the ideas that are being touted by these UN programs and has served to bring them together... He is, of course, not the programs themselves. No, they are run through the auspices of the United Nations. And, of course, once again, we have the puppeteer David Rockefeller in the background, who just happened to be the person to bring Morris Strong into the United Nations fold. Of course, though, the Rockefellers have very little connection to the United Nations and very little influence over that organization, right? Yes, indeed. Well, let's turn to some specifics of what we're really driving at here in the move towards global governments through the creation of hype and scaremongering over global environmental issues. And let's look at the 1992 Earth Summit, which Morris Strong was the Secretary General of, and something that came out of that, which was sustainable development development and specifically a UN plan called Agenda 21. For more information, let's turn to Dr. Michael Kaufman, who has a PhD in forest science from the University of Idaho, and who was able to stop the Convention on Biological Diversity, the Biodiversity Treaty, in the U.S. Senate back in 1994, just one hour before it was voted on by the Senate, By presenting to them maps showing how the Biodiversity Treaty, again part of a UN treaty, designed to take over vast swaths of most countries, including the United States, to deliver them as nature preserves to the UN for the UN's own purposes. And Dr. Kaufman, as I say, was able to stop the ratification of that treaty. And let's listen to an interview that Dr. Michael Kaufman did with Alex Jones. On the Alex Jones Show from August 29th, 2007, where they talk about Agenda 21, the man made global warming hype, and the inevitable march towards a UN led global government, and, of course, population reduction.
3: Well, Agenda 21, I think, is a 42 or 40 or 42 chapter document that basically defines everything about what we can and cannot do in the world, literally. It defines our social morals. It defines exactly what we can do, what kind of activities we can have, what kind of property rights we can have. Uh, it defines almost everything. It's a soft law. In other words, it doesn't have teeth to back it up, but it was a very attempted to actually implement it by creating and bringing in what is called the Earth Charter, which is a religious document that defines based on religious purposes. Would you call what? it
0: a game plan or manifesto yes. or
3: blueprint? It's a blueprint, it's really what it is, and it literally—if you read it—it is—it is, it is un- incredible reading. Well, I
0: mean, I, I, mean it, I mean, I, I mean, reading <laughs> biological diversity treatises and other things that I got directly from the library. What's the particular one I've got it in Road to Tyranny, where they say we need to reinstitute human sacrifice on a mass scale?
3: Yes, in fact, the documents that we gave the U.S. Senate back in 1994 to stop the ratification of the biodiversity treaty actually talked about the fact that there were human sacrifices as a ways of of, of by the way, the we're not population. joking.
0: These are official UN documents that say we can stage wars, uh, old societies and human sacrifice. That's a good idea. I mean, these are nuts.
3: They really are. And they actually have a plan to reduce the world population from the six and a half, seven billion 7 billion people now down to 1 to 2 billion people. They say it has to be done. And those of you who are net consumers and so forth are going to be the ones that go. It was very interesting, Alex, when this first came back out in the 1990s, and I was just getting started, and I wasn't very well known, I had a chance to talk with some mid-level environmental leadership and so forth, and at, at dinners and so, and I've ask them, why is it that you want this to do, want, want this to happen, and you will volunteer yourself up for this, on the altar of sacrifice? And they, to the very person, I it was five or six people that I did this to, and every single one of them looked at me with shock, and basically said this, that We need to be around to make sure it gets done right.
0: Exactly. They're going to have all the resources. They're special. They're going to. These are the sickest filth, and they are so arrogant and, and waddle around, and I just want to knock their teeth out. Because, I mean, these are aggressive wannabe killers. These are wannabe Nazis. The Nazis were big into environmentalism.
3: Well, very big into environmentalism. In fact, they were very much into the occult. Most people don't realize that because you won't find it in your history books. But if you dig down into the some of the original documentation behind Hitler and and many of the Nazi leaders, yeah, that's even on mainline TV involved,
0: now. In fact, going yeah, back, uh, particularly the names of those UN documents and, and charters where they call for the human sacrifice. Because I want to, I mean, my memory fails me. Mean, what's the specific document?
3: The one that I gave to the U.S. Senate to stop the ratification of the treaty was called the United Nations Global Adversity Assessment. That's the one I've got. Yeah, right. And I can't remember what pages, it's in. I could probably find it again. But um, no, I mean, it's uh, in it Road in to Tyranny.
0: Official U.N. public stuff. You can go get it at the library. I went to the library. Somebody mailed it to me, and I didn't want to believe it. I couldn't believe it. So I went to the UT library, and it took like three yeah. hours. And they went back in the stacks and brought it out. Official told- U.N. seals.
3: Yes, absolutely. And we need to recognize that these people are very serious about what they're doing. And they think that the only way that they can survive with them being in control and this is what they – there's no there's no intention of the leadership that, and the climate leadership and so forth for them to take the draconian actions to cut back on their use of carbon and so forth as they are demanding that you and I do. And that's right in this DVD that we're going to be talking about here in the next 45 minutes, that these people have no intention of ever doing any of the things they're demanding us to do. They are elitist.
2: Once again – it all comes down to reducing the Earth's population by billions. An objective that the elite have alluded to again and again and again, and which Morris Strong mused about in that article which we read earlier, talking about how a secret society using the Davil's Forum as their outlet could bring about by engineering a financial crisis. And, of course, the Biodiversity Treaty talking about human sacrifice and the need to reinstate such things as sacred groves and earth worship in order to bring people back in line with nature. Again, this is some pretty extraordinary stuff, and that particular global biodiversity assessment, which they referred to in that conversation, is, to the best of my knowledge, not available online. The closest thing that I can find is the Global Biodiversity Assessment Section 10, a condensation by Henry Lamb and Dr. Michael Kaufman, which can be found at freedom.org, and I'll provide a link, of course, in the documentation section. And this is basically a condensation or a summary of the report and some excerpts of some key passages from that report as selected by Henry Lamb and Michael Kaufman. And the key passages on sacrifice and the institution of sacred groves are not included in this condensation. But Alex Jones did include close-ups of that material, which you can actually read on the screen if you download or buy 9-11 Road to Tyranny. And, of course, I will include a link to the YouTube video of that section of that movie so you can read some of the passages for yourself Once again, I'd like to call on my listeners. If anyone out there knows of a place online to find a copy of this particular biodiversity assessment, please let me know by contacting me through the contact form on corbettreport.com. Now, when we talk about reinstituting human sacrifice as a way of bringing people in line with Mother Nature, and this being in official UN documents, we start to run up against the limits of credulity. How could this possibly be the case, and how could anyone seriously advocate killing billions of people to bring us in line with Mother Nature? Well, all I can say is that this goes much deeper than a mere climate-industrial complex, as the first Real News section of today's episode pointed out, although of course that's one element of the puzzle, and of course the elites who own the system will always find a way to make us pay for our own enslavement, which is exactly what the new carbon taxes and carbon trading schemes will amount to when they are fully implemented under the auspices of international bodies like the UN. But, as I say, it goes beyond a mere profit motive. What is driving this is a deep ideological belief, which, for many of the elites, is manifested as an earth-worship religion. Now, I realize that this starts to get out of the bounds of the usual topics of the Corbett Report, and it would require at least a complete episode of its own to flesh out in its entirety, but as a hint for those who are looking into this type of information, might I suggest that you take a look at such things as Morris Strong in connection with the World Service Intergroup. And I'll just read a small section from an article entitled Curious triangle, Morris Strong, Paul Martin, and Javier Solana, which has this information about the infamous Mr. Strong. Quote, Morris Strong has been photographed in group meditations at the New Age Vatican City of Findhorn. They were praying to whatever source they acknowledged for the reappearance of the Christ. By Christ, they definitely did not mean Jesus. Strong was there as part of an excursion with Lucius Trust, world goodwill folk, under the auspices of something they call the World Service Intergroup. Using their own words, The purpose of the World Service Intergroup is to generate a focused, conscious, and deliberate intergroup effort to specifically assist the externalization of the hierarchy and the reappearance of the Christ. One of our tasks is to recognize them, Hierarchy and assist them by preparing humanity for the imminent reappearance of the world teacher. This world teacher, or the coming one, is known by many different names in the various spiritual traditions. Christ, Maitreya, Messiah, Imam Mahdi, etc. This reappearance will be preceded by a widespread opening of the heart of humanity and a recognition of the inner teacher in each one of us, manifesting as a consciousness of love and service to all. End quote. And it only gets weirder from there. Yes, I encourage my listeners to look further into the World Service Intergroup and the umbrella organization under which it can be found, the Lucius Trust, formerly known as the Lucifer Publishing Corporation, founded in 1922, and formerly at 666 United Nations Plaza. ...and the official United Nations publisher, and also the group that runs the United Nations Meditation Room, which consists of a large iron ore tablet in the middle of an empty room with a meditative abstract piece of art on the wall. And, as I say, it really does get quite bizarre from there, and will require a future episode of the Corbett Report to flesh out in some detail... But suffice it to say, there are those in the elite who really do take this as a type of religious belief. And there are others, I believe, that are more cynical in their approach to this, like Mikhail Gorbachev, who wrote about the need to create a green religion in order to bring the masses into this new world order, in which they will be little better than feudal peasants, and will not only appreciate that fact, they will actually enjoy it, relish it, because, of course, all of their sacrifice is for the greater good of Mother Earth. Now, this is an urge that we have seen time and again when examining such things as the man-made climate change myth, which often rests on an underlying urge in the human psyche to believe that the world really does revolve around each of us individually and that our actions will either appease or displease the gods of nature and thus have either wonderful or hellish effects on the environment around us. And of course, nothing of this has anything to do with science, as proven time and time and time again by all of the actual pieces of science that show that man-made climate change is a complete farce. But nevertheless, things like Agenda 21 and sustainable development, which sound wonderful and warm and fuzzy, will continue to be pushed by the elite, the billionaire elites and heads of powerful corporations like David Rockefeller and Morris Strong and Ted Turner and Prince Philip and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Mikhail Gorbachev and Al Gore, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on. Every one of them trying to make you believe that you have to sacrifice basic facets of your daily life in order to make the Earth well again. And no, I am not going to extremes when I say that. Quite the contrary, it is the corporate-controlled media which is playing lackey to these ridiculous ideas propounded by billionaires seeking to enslave all of us that will make these outlandish ideas appear normal, like this wonderful article from the New York Times, 16th of April, 2009, Third World Stove Suit is Target in Climate Fight. Quote, It's hard to believe that this is what's melting the glaciers, said Dr. Virabhadran Ramanthan one of the world's leading climate scientists, as he weaved through a warren of mud-brick huts, each containing a mud cook stove, pouring soot into the atmosphere. As women in ragged saris of a thousand hues bake bread and stew lentils in the early evening over fires fueled by twigs and dung, children cough from the dense smoke that fills their homes. Black grime coats the undersides of thatched roofs. At dawn a brown cloud stretches over the landscape like a diaphanous, dirty blanket. In Kuluwa, in central India, with no cars and little electricity, emissions of carbon dioxide, the main heat-trapping gas linked to global warming, are near zero. But soot, also known as black carbon, from tens of thousands of villages like this one in developing countries, is emerging as a major and previously unappreciated source of global climate change." End quote. I'll let you read that article for yourself and find how the article goes on to tell us how without any sources or any proof or any attempt at trying to make any sort of causal relation how these cooking stoves in the third world are responsible for the melting of the glaciers. No, I'm not making that up, it's really in the article. And yes, apparently we're supposed to believe that third-world countries attempting to feed themselves are actually responsible for the dying of the Earth. So what's the alternative? I guess to let billions of people die. Because that's the only way we will ever be able to appease these people who insist that the overpopulation of the Earth is truly the only thing killing Mother Nature. Of course, one key element of this is Agenda 21 and, of course, all of the umbrella of United Nations organizations working on sustainable development and trying to sell that as a wonderful thing. And it's up to us to inform others about what is really happening and the real agenda behind this program and many others like it. So in order to find out more about such things as Sustainable Development and Agenda 21, I would recommend that people look over the website freedomadvocates.org, which has a wealth of information on the subject and a lot of links to lots of video and audio resources that you can use to find out more and to educate others about the real agenda behind Agenda 21. But of course, it's important to note that this is only one brick in a much larger pyramid of control which is being constructed around us and which will come at us from every angle and will be used eventually to enslave us in a global governmental system in which we have no rights and no say and in which such basic things as private property and private transportation and the ability to choose where we wish to live will be forever irrevocably revoked, at the will of unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats at the United Nations, like Morris Strong. For an excellent analysis of these issues and how they tie together, I'd like to finish today with an excerpt from Alan Watt of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, someone who my listeners will probably be quite familiar with by now. Right now, let's listen to Alan Watt from May 11th, 2009, talking about Agenda 21, the feudalization of the Earth, and how the elite plan to bring about their global depopulation. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me this week, and inviting you to join me again next week for episode 88 of the Corbett Report, You Are Being Programmed.
4: And the way the elites see the people is for a different function. They don't see a society where they're just part of it. The the, the people have, were, were in the past, were always there to serve the elites. That was their purpose. That's what peasants were for. To those at the top, and we've seen it through many articles I've read here, in fact, on the show, they claim there's just too many people left. They don't need us all now. They don't need us to till up the lands and farms because now we have intensive farming, they don't need so many people. They don't need us to work their factories, because their factories are all being worked by people in China. So what do they want to do with the people? Well, they plan to take down the population over a period of time. In the process, intergenerationally, they'll move them into the cities, that's under Agenda 21 at the United Nations. There will be no private property, that's in Agenda 21. Private transportation. It's in Agenda 21. And you'll find a whole new method of keeping you in line, because there'd be electronic cash only, and that would be used as a weapon as well. If you're bad or you're so politically incorrect, you'll be punished by withdrawal of your money or credits or whatever they happen to call it at that time. Maybe your carbon footprint, who knows? And you've been unable to pay your rents or or even uh, get on a bus. And during that period, too, they expect a lot of riots breaking out, because obviously the cities will be incredibly overcrowded. They already are. I've read before how, back in the 50s and 60s, they were talking about urban sprawl. In fact, that was one of the first things I saw on television. From satellite, there was a program on urban sprawl, and I thought, well, sprawl's a nasty word, and... Urban sounds not too bad, but urban sprawl was putting their they put it right in their head right from the beginning. There was just too many people, and they were sort of untidier or, or something like that. The idea being that they didn't want people spreading out from the cities. Therefore, laws were passed. They could only rebuild on existing lots, even where buildings were. They could only knock down buildings and build new ones. But immigration was to go up in the Western world massively empty those countries, and you know what happens if you're not building more and more houses. You're rapidly overcrowded in the big cities, and it appears as though you're overpopulated. Meanwhile, they will been making it harder and harder and harder to live in rural areas. In fact, under Agenda 21, if you're not necessary to that area, then you won't live in it. And they are moving people from the rural areas. The taxis across the Western world in the rural areas have been jacked up so much. It's just incredible. They don't want you in the country. They want you crammed in. Overcrowded cities, while the elite themselves, of course, don't live in those same cities, they will have their own specially, uh, special high-tech uh, smaller cities built elsewhere. They already do. They're building quite a few in China for them. So, therefore, the future is already planned and mapped out intergenerationally, and that's how they work Fabian style. That's how they can always pull it off.
1: Your cell phone, your world, your time, your ideas No barcode, no party, no ID, no beers Your bank card, your license, your thoughts, your fears No SIM card, no disco, no photo, not here Your blood, your sweat, your passions, your regrets, your profits Your time off, your fashions, your sex, your pills, your graphs, your tits, your ass, your laughs, your balls We want. not be your
3: we want your soul We want your soul
1: Your habits your facts, your fears give us your address your shoe size your ears, your digits your plans your number your eyes your schedule your desktop your details your life show us
3: your children your photos
1: your home Here. and you live in that egg environment and your parents kind of cut out all the external crap that comes in and protect you and nourish you and clothe you and all that it's a very nice little egg and it's comfortable but at some point you hatch out and start crawling around and eating stuff on your own. You start reading, you start looking at the tube, you start doing all sorts of things. You hatch out as a maggot.